Good morning, Harvest, and happy Easter. Look, I, I get that Easter's a little different this year, but here's something I know for sure. The hope of Easter has not changed. The hope of the resurrection has not changed. In fact, what we, what we typically see that in, in times of uncertainty like we're in today, our eyes are actually open more clearly to our desperate need of the hope of the resurrection. When life's moving along real easy, we, we can be lulled into this false sense of security, but then there's that moment where our life gets bumped a little bit and we start asking deeper questions. We start looking for deeper answers. And so this morning, here, here's a question I, I want us to ask. What's the most important thing you would need to know in uncertain times? What's the most important thing you would need to know in uncertain times? Would it, would it be something about your finances, like to have financial knowledge? Would, would it be to have greater health knowledge? Like what, what would it be? What's the most important thing you need to know? Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. It was a, a church in the city of Corinth it was, it was, it, that existed in the first century. It's a, a church not much different, though, from our church today. It wasn't a perfect church. I mean, there were problems in this church. They had financial problems in their church. They, they had relationship problems there. They had, they had spiritual problems going on. They had deep life struggles. And, and Paul writes this letter and he says, I, I want to share in the midst of those struggles, I want to share with you the most important thing you can ever know. And he points them to the resurrection. He says, it's the resurrection because if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If it's not true, then it's game over for Christians because our whole faith hangs on the truth of the resurrection. It was the resurrection that launched Christianity. Before that first Easter Sunday, there was not Christianity. All the Christ followers had abandoned Jesus at the cross. I mean, think about it. They, they were saying, man, we gave three years of our lives to this and now it's over. Why was it over? Because, because they knew what we know today. Dead people don't come back to life. They're going, Jesus is dead. It's done. Nobody was at the tomb that first Easter morning going, oh man, this is gonna be good. Man, he's coming out any time now. No, everyone who showed up at the tomb, we read, shows up surprised that it's empty because no one expected a resurrection. And so Paul's writing this letter to these first century Christians and he's saying, this is the most important thing you can know. I want us to see this morning how, how relevant this is for us today because for every single one of us, this is the most important thing for us to know, to bring a certain hope in uncertain times. And so Paul begins this in chapter 15. We're gonna look at where he says this. He says, now to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, is the foundation you're on and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And now Paul starts here, he goes, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. And he uses a word here, the gospel. And it's kind of a church word now, but in Paul's day, that was just a regular word. It's a word that meant good news. 
It was a, a delivery of good news. Now, typically you would hear this word used where a messenger would come back from where a battle's being fought and come back to the city with a gospel, with a good news that the battle's been won. That's good news. And picture it this way. In, in light of our current situation we're in right now, it, the gospel wouldn't be a message that says, hey, hey, coronavirus is going to be a long fight, so, so here's how we survive. We need to socially isolate. You need to wash your hands a lot more. When, when you cough or sneeze, cough into your arm like this. That's not gospel. That's not good news. That's good advice. Good news, gospel would be the virus is over. It's gone. It's done. That's gospel. That's good news. So Paul's saying, I want, I want to tell you this good news, this gospel. And what he says, he says, for, for I delivered to you as of first importance, he says in verse 3. First importance. He says, this is the most important thing you need to know. So if you're tuning in this morning and, and you're super skeptical about Jesus, for sure skeptical about the resurrection, about Easter, listen, this message is for you. If, if you're listening this morning and and you grew up in the church, and I mean, you, you went to Sunday school, you went to summer camp, and you even threw a, a stick on the fire and made a commitment that, I mean, I'm following Jesus, and then, then life moved forward, and you were hit with some hard questions. Questions where your simple Sunday school answers didn't seem to provide the answers for you. Your, your faith took a hit, and now you're wondering, and, and, and you're wandering, and you're, you're seeking. Man, I'm, I'm praying for you this morning you would see a sure foundation in the resurrection where you can place your life on, step out onto that as you pursue Jesus again. Maybe this morning you're here and man, you're fired up for Jesus. Like, like, like Easter's your Super Bowl. Here's my prayer. My prayer would be for this, that, that, that you'd be encouraged even more this morning. That, that the certain hope you have in the resurrection, that by the grace of God, by the power of God's spirit at work in you, that that hope you have will become even more sure. Now, what does Paul say? What does he say is the good news? What's the first importance he wants to share with us? He says, I delivered you a first importance, but I also received, he goes, what? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's just another name that Peter has, so Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He goes, some have died, but most of them are alive. He goes on, that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul's saying, I, I want to lay out something for you that's of most importance. And what's he say is of most importance? Right away in verses 3 and 4, he says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Paul's saying, I want to give you this good news. In a world filled with bad news, I mean, we look around, we see so much bad news. Sin and injustice and oppression and war and sickness and death. There's so much bad news. And Paul's saying, hey, the bad news is not all there is. The bad news does not have the final say. Evil does not. Sin does not. Death even does not get the final say. This is the good news. That Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Paul's saying this is the gospel, the good news of our certain hope. Not good advice. It's not a moral code he's laying out. He's not, he's not saying here's a political system you need to buy into. Here's a, a new religious philosophy man, you need to adopt. He's saying, no, this is good news. This is not good advice. I'm not giving you things to do, he's saying. This is good news. It's something that God has already done for us. Listen, that's what makes Christianity so different from every other religion. Other religions teach you ways of behaving. Here's ways you relate to God, but Christianity at its core is not a list of things we do or are for God. It's news about what God has done for us. And all of this good news rests on the reality of the resurrection. That, listen, listen, that Jesus literally rose from the dead. It all hinges on that to be true. That Jesus' corpse was laid in a grave. No pulse, no breath. It stayed there for three days, and then he came back to life. Now, Paul lays out this unbelievable news, and, and, and you can imagine me going, that can't be true. That sounds too good to be true. So he goes, let me give you some evidence for why this is true. He says, the first evidence I want to give you for the resurrection is is the fulfilled prophecy we see. In fact, in that verse, you see, he says, Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's saying, "Hey, hey, this isn't something new. This was prophesied all over, all over the Old Testament. That, that over and over again, that we see hundreds of prophecies about who Jesus would be, what he would do, how he would die, how he would rise again. And, and, and these prophecies all through the Old Testament, they're not vague, lame, goofy, wimpy prophecies like, like, like a fortune cookie or a horoscope prophecy that could be so vague, of course it comes true. You will meet someone and find joy today. I went through the drive-thru at Wendy's today and and they gave me a free small frosty. The prophecy came true. I met someone and found joy. Yeah, that's not the Old Testament prophecies. They had such detail in them, specific detail fulfilled. I mean, just think about surrounding the death of Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 5 said that he would be pierced. Isaiah 53 11 said that he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. Zechariah 9 says that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem that week on a colt. Zechariah 11 said he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's just surrounding his death. There are prophecies about about his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection. In fact, 300 specific prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. In fact, there's a professor of science at Westmount College in California, he did a study on, on, on probability and, and the probability of having just eight prophecies fulfilled. He said to have just eight fulfilled is a one in 10 to the power of 17 chance. 
That's 10 with 17 zeros on the end of it. To have eight prophecies fulfilled. Let's think about what that means. That means this. If, if, if one in 10 chance would be like putting 10 coins in a hat, blindfolding somebody, have them reach in, and one of those coins is marked with a red dot, and for them to pull one of those out of the 10, that's a one in 10 chance they would have. Okay, now, now one in 10 to the 17th power. All right, so, so let's take not 10 coins, but 10 with 18 zeros. I looked it up on Google. It's called a quintillion. 10 quintillion. Sorry, a quintillion coins, all right? One of them marked with a red dot. The, the rest of the quintillion, you spread them out. It would cover, listen, it would cover that many coins, that many loonies would cover Ontario over a foot deep full of coins. Okay, now, now what are the chances? One in 10 and 17. So it would be like taking that blindfolded person for eight prophecies to be fulfilled, shoot the blindfolded person out of a rocket from Muskoka somewhere into Ontario, and then have him land, reach down, and pick out coin with a red dot on it. That's just eight prophecies being fulfilled. And remember, there are 300 or more prophecies about Jesus. And not just the specific prophecies, but the fact that the all, the whole totality of the Old Testament all pointing to Jesus, finding its resolution in Jesus, that the Old Testament is not just a bunch of stories with good morals. They're all pointing to the hope that was coming in Jesus. Paul says there's the evidence of that. And he goes on, he goes, here's another evidence, another evidence of the resurrection. He says, the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. In fact, what's he say? He says, he says that, that Jesus appeared, he says here in, in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some are sleeping. Now, here's what's crazy about that. All historical scholars would say this, believe that the Apostle Paul was a real person. He's not just a made-up Bible guy. He was an actual man who lived in the first century. He, he, he was a, a religious leader. And, and all scholars would agree that, that 1 Corinthians, this letter he wrote to the church, was written probably in the late 50s A.D., so let's put that in context of what he's saying here when he says that, the, that 500 people saw the resurrection. You can go talk to these eyewitnesses. Listen, those eyewitnesses are still alive because here, here's the thing. All reputable scholars would, would believe that Jesus was an historical man, that, that, that there was a, a, a rabbi named Jesus who claimed he came from God, that that same Jesus was crucified by the Romans in around 30 or 32 A.D., so here's Paul writing this letter. It's only 20 years after the resurrection. Now that might sound like a long time to you if you're, if you're super young, but 20 years is not a long time. In fact, it'd be like somebody saying today, hey man, I remember 20 years ago. Like I remember back when, when, it, when we were celebrating New Year's in 1999 and it was coming into year 2000. And, and man, we all believed that, I mean, everyone was saying that the computers would not be able to handle that shift. That they weren't built to, to take the year switch and they'd all flip back to zero instead of 2000. And when that happens, they were all fearful that, man, the medical uh, computers are all wrecked. All the, the stock market's going to crash. And people thought, man, we're done for. It's the end of the world. And if you're sitting on your couch, you're going, come on. Really? People really thought that? Man, if you're so young, you don't remember, turn to somebody else in the living room and go, hey, hey, you were alive. Is that real? And they'd say, yeah. It was Y2K, man. We got guns and canned goods. We were all ready for it. So here's the thing what I'm saying. The resurrection was not some legend passed down through generations and hundreds of years. They added to it and made up this story. No, he's saying, yo, go ask these guys. They're still alive, man. It was 20 years ago this happened. 
If you're going to make up a false religion, you're going to wait till everybody's dead before you start claiming stuff like a resurrection. You're not going to boldly say, go ask them. They were there. And you can say, well, maybe the 500 people that Paul's talking about, maybe they were just mistaken. Maybe they so loved Jesus that much, they just hoped that he would have been resurrected. So they just thought he wasn't. I mean, I get that. I could buy that if, if a few people said it. But over 500? <clears throat> well, maybe then they were lying. Why would they lie about the resurrection? Well, they would lie because they're going to create a a religious system so they could get power. Well, is that what we see in history? In in the letters written by these guys, did they gain power? I mean, Paul says, go ask Cephas, ask Peter. I mean, Peter, we we can read one of his letters in the New Testament. He wrote two letters. In 1 Peter, he was talking about the fact that he says, hey, hey, we're all going to die for Jesus. We don't have power. We're going to be oppressed by by this this oppressive uh, culture we're in. So he's saying, don't fight back. Don't don't seek power. And and through 1 Peter, he's saying, man, seek love. Seek compassion. Seek forgiveness. Why? He says, because you can be confident because Jesus rose from the grave. So you will experience a resurrection too. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talk about seeking power. He says in in his second letter to this Corinthian church, he says, man, the apostles were chosen by God to be the least of society, the most despised. He goes, why was that? He says, so that we can demonstrate that our hope is not in this life, but our hope is in the resurrection. They weren't seeking power. They saw Jesus alive, and it changed everything for them. Something happened that made cowardly people brave. Something happened that made skeptics turn into worshipers. Something happened that transformed haters of Jesus into lovers of Christ. Something happened that gave guilty people hope. Something happened that that took moms and their kids as they're being thrown to the lions for their faith in Christ. Something happened in them that they faced that with joy. What is it? What is it about the resurrection? What's the hope that this resurrection brings that changes us? Paul lays it out. He says, here's first. The hope of the resurrection is that my past is forgiven. My past is forgiven. And he says it there in verse three. In verse three, he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He's saying Christ had a purpose in coming to earth. It was to set you free from your sins. He, he was doing what you couldn't do for yourself. He, Jesus came to, to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, to die the death that we should have died, to pay the penalty for our sins. You see, every sin has penalty. Sins have consequences. I mean, we just know this from an earthly perspective. Where, where you, you make a mess of things, you, you make bad choices, and you, and you can see how those bad choices can mess up your life, can mess up relationships and families and marriages. And now, for the most part, we'll admit, we're okay with saying, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, but it's so hard to say, I'm not just not perfect, man. I'm, I'm hopelessly lost in my sin, dead in my sin, lost without hope unless there's a Savior. lost in my sin that separates me from a holy God for eternity unless there's a Savior. 
Listen, I get it. Our, our culture doesn't like to talk about this very much. We, we talk about the goodness we have deep down inside and, and then the Bible comes along and the Bible says, sorry, Disney, you're wrong. The deeper you go to find that goodness deep in your heart, the deeper you go, the more sin you will find. The Bible says our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Now, the Bible does describe what it is to be a good person without sin. So there is a standard we, you, can, you can shoot for. Here's a standard. The Bible says, hey, if you rock out the Ten Commandments, how are we doing on those? How are you doing? Let's, let's take the test a little bit. Let's, let's go, go through the, the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with your, with your whole heart, soul, and mind. How are we doing on that? Like, like is God your supreme treasure? Is, is he always the supreme in your life, in your thoughts, where, where you seek him first above everything? Okay, okay, let's go to the second commandment then. The second one says, you shall honor your father and your mother. So, so how are you doing on that? I mean, do, do you show in your, in your heart action and in, in your attitudes, do you, do you show always perfection towards those in authority? Okay, all right, third one, you, you shall not lie. I mean, are you always truthful, perfectly truthful? Like, like you don't hide anything. You don't twist any facts to make yourself look good. You don't put any pictures out on social media that, that kind of make you look better than where things are actually going during the day. Maybe you're sitting there going, okay, man, I know a bit about the Ten Commandments. Like, let's keep going because I know there's one about murder in there. Get to murder. Get there because I think I've got that one dialed. And, and then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, if you have anger and hatred in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart. Another commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And you're like, okay, I, I'm okay on that one. And Jesus says, if you've ever had lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So, so here we are. That's just five commandments. We're O for five. I mean, if we keep going, I'm telling you, we'll be 0 for 10. And I don't know what kind of easy school you went to, but even if they grade you on the curve, 0 for 10 is always a fail. Listen, on your very best day, you're in desperate need of God's grace. Not your worst day, on your best day. When, when, you're, when you've gone to church and, and you're helping old ladies across the street and everything's going great. And listen, we are in need of God's grace. And the gospel says that Jesus came to live a perfect life so that he could absorb the full penalty, the wrath of God against our sin. And the good news for those who are sinful like us, the good news for those maybe you feel like you can never measure up, in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. The old is gone, the new has come. You've been buried with him in his death. And, and like Christ, you've been raised again from the dead to the glory of the Father so that we could walk in a newness of life. That's the truth of who you are as a Christ follower, putting your hope in the resurrection where, where God looks at the cross of Christ and he sees your sin there. And he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. All our sin, all your brokenness, all your shame, fully forgiven, fully covered, fully dealt with forever. My past is forgiven. Paul goes on, he says this, not only is your past forgiven, but my present is transformed. Your very present today is transformed. So you could ask, man, can, can broken people really be changed? Can angry people become patient? Can, can liars become trustworthy? Can... can, can Cruel people become 
become kind? Can cheaters become faithful? Can, can broken people be filled with hope? Can shame-filled people have joy in their lives? And look what Paul says. Paul, Paul says this. Go, go to verse 9 and 10. He describes himself. He's saying, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, Paul's saying, I was an abuser, I was hateful, I, I was a racist, I, I wasn't, hey, forget about being unworthy to be a leader in the church. He says, I wasn't even worthy to be a follower of Jesus, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of God, I've been transformed. By the grace of God, I'm not who I was anymore. Here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying Christianity is not just that your sins are forgiven, and that is amazing news, but it goes even deeper than that. There's something even greater to celebrate than not only are your past sins forgiven, there's a hope in the resurrection that says that you've been born again to a new life, that you're transformed. You've been changed. And, and not just a superficial change of, oh, I can kind of act a little bit better. No, a deep change where you've been given a new heart. That Jesus was raised from the dead so that you could experience a resurrection, not a little tune-up. God's not saying, let me put a little bit of makeup on you as a corpse so you look better in the casket. No, he says you have a new heart, a new life, new pursuits, new desires. That God goes into the deadness of your life and by his grace by grace. We don't deserve the favor that God pours out on us. It, it has nothing to do with anything we've accomplished or done. It's by grace, by his grace, by his mercy, by his love. He adopts you into his family. He gives you a new life and a new heart, new loves, new, new, new hopes, where your heart now loves to give and serve and love and pursue God's glory. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is the reality of who you are. You are born again by the grace of God. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were one thing. Now you've been transformed into something completely new. And that brokenness and rebellion and shame that Satan likes to come in and remind you of, listen, by God's grace, he didn't just forgive you. He's changed you into something new. You're transformed. I mean, think about what this would have meant for Peter. Peter, who, who at the crucifixion of Christ, when Christ was betrayed by, by everybody, he was one who betrayed him. He, he even denied knowing him. He takes off and says, I'm done. I'm so disappointed. I'm so in despair. My Messiah is dead. He denies Jesus. Then on Sunday, he goes to the tomb. And it's empty. Then Jesus appears to him. Comes him and, and what does Jesus do? He turns Peter's sadness into joy. His despair is turned into triumph. And if you've placed your hope in Christ, the resurrection gives you this deep and true and eternal hope. That's what all of Scripture points to. This is what God's been doing. God's been turning the wheels of history to do what? To, to reveal how broken our world is. To the point where we can actually see as we look around, we can see the impact of sin. We can see God's judgment against sin. And God's going, I'm showing you your sin to show you that Jesus took care of that sin. Jesus took care of all the judgment you see. Jesus took care of all that judgment. 
And he rose again to conquer death so that you could know new birth. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, this is your story. The hope is real. This certain hope of the approval of God. And where that becomes weightier in your life, where that takes up more space, where that becomes the foundation, where that gets more glory than the sin you run to or the shame that overwhelms you, as God's glory, as God's approval, as God's acceptance matters more to you, your today is filled with hope and transformation. Listen, Jesus didn't die to make you feel guilty about your sin. He died to set you free forever. My, my present is transformed. Here's the last point for this morning. The hope of the resurrection is this. My future is secure. My future is secure. In fact, flip over a page to, to near the end of chapter 15. and You're going to see this verse down there, verse 55, where Paul talking about our future he says this, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's saying, death has lost its sting. Now, the word there for sting, it's, it's not sting like a wasp sting. As painful as that is, and as much as we all hate wasps, they're the jerks of nature, they just sting for the heck of it, right? And that sting's gonna hurt, right? But that's not the word sting here. The word sting is actually a, a deadly sting. A sting that carries with it deadly poison. You'd use this word here for the sting of a scorpion. Paul's saying that sting has been removed. Not about you, I don't know about you, but man, I, I still feel the, the sting of death at times, right? When, when you go to a funeral and it feels like death is, is gloating over the fact that it's had the victory at that funeral where, where Jesus goes to Lazarus' funeral and sees that his friend has died and Jesus weeps over that. But Paul's saying that because of the reality of the resurrection, the final sting, the sting of sin, he says, the deadly, damning, never-ending sting of sin, the sting of the law is gone. We already saw how all of us have broken God's law, so, so the sting of death is the fact that we recognize that there will be one day when all of us will stand before a holy God, a God with whom we have broken his eternal law, and yet the hope, the sting removed is that you no longer will stand there condemned, that if you put your hope in Christ, God looks at you and sees Christ. Like, yeah, but all the sin I've done, he sees the perfect record of Jesus. The sting is gone. Death is swallowed up in victory. The, the pain, the loss, the suffering, the, the difficulties of this life will one day be swallowed up in victory. They'll be redeemed. That, that you can know that the suffering of this world right now, that, that it will show up in eternity as glory and joy. It was this secure future that, that Radically changed Paul from being this, this hateful murderer to a grace-filled missionary. It, it turned Peter, the hope of this resurrection, turned Peter from a scared man who had given up at the crucifixion to a man who walked through suffering with hope. 
who had a boldness as he stood up to the religious leaders and said, no, no, I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. At the very end of his life, when he was told, you need to recant about this resurrection, he says, I'm not going to this. We're going to kill you. We're going to crucify you like we crucified Jesus. And he said, no, I don't want to be crucified like that. I'm not worthy. Crucify me upside down, but I'm not going to recant about Jesus and his resurrection and how it's changed me. It's his future hope that gave him that courage. It's the future hope that would take this early church, even this church in Corinth, and, and as they lived in a culture that was oppressive, that they would care for people and love people. Later on, it was the early church during the, the Antonine plague that hit Rome where everybody just abandoned the city of Rome because of the sick. They didn't want to die. It was a future hope that caused those Christians to, to be marked with radical generosity and love as they stayed with the sick. Why was it? Why, why are Christians, in, as we read about them in history, why, why so much more compassionate? Why so much more forgiving? Why so much more loving and generous? Were, were first century Christians just really good people? Listen, this, this church in Corinth where Paul wrote this letter to, man, they were a train wreck of a people, broken people, messed up people. But what radically changed them was not, not, not just a religion. What would cause them to risk their lives for the gospel? It was a certain hope of their future. Where they knew that even after death, the worst this life could offer is death. They said, you know what? We know what's waiting for us is the love of God. You see, you can't scare men and women who don't fear death. You can't scare men and women who've been eyeball to eyeball with the resurrection and the life. Listen, Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. So you have a secure future. Now, now, now you can ask, but how do I know? How do I know that, that the, the price was paid, that my sin is forgiven, that I've been transformed, that my future resurrection is sure? Well, listen, we know this because what? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That, that the resurrection was God's receipt on the debt that was paid. It's the receipt. It's, it's like if you're walking out of Costco and you're, you're pushing your cart out of Costco or your carts out of Costco, right? Just the huge mound. And as you're leaving Costco, man, they're so good at this, right? What do they always do? There's people at the door. What are they looking for? You better have it, right? Right? They're looking for the receipt. And they're saying, hey, did you pay for this stuff? Has it been paid for? And you have that receipt in your hand, right? And you walk with confidence. You're like, paid for, set free, never have to be paid for again, right? They may not do that in Costco, but listen, that's the resurrection. The God, in that moment, said the price that was paid on the cross is done. I've given you the receipt. Maybe you this morning, there's lots of people. Maybe this is you. You don't believe you could ever be freed from your sins never freed from your failures, never freed from your inadequacies, never changed, never have hope. Listen, when, when Christ was raised from the dead, God stamped on that resurrection, paid in full across the pages of history, across your life and your future. The resurrection is a hope that our past is forgiven, our present is transformed, our future is secure with Christ. That's our hope in Christ. Suffering and death does not have the last word. There's a savior, there's a resurrection. Death is not the end of the story if you know Christ because you've already been resurrected and joined into God's family to live your life for his glory. And this resurrection, listen, it's available to everyone. 
It's a gift. But it's a gift you have to receive. It's not automatic. So my question for you this morning is this, have you received this gift? I know that there are people listening right now who God has been pursuing where you felt the hand of God on your life and he's been pressing in and, and you may have lost hope. You may have never experienced the hope of now, what would that be yours today, this morning, where you are? Now, what would that look like? Well, it's a recognition that Jesus is king. It begins with a surrender where, where you would say, Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord and I, I'm no longer mine. So I surrender my sin, my hopes, my desires, all for you. Faith means this, that, that you receive this as a gift of God. So, so it, it might look like a prayer where you would say, thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, for what you provide for me. I receive this gift. I receive this as my hope in life and death that I'm no longer my own, but I've been bought with a price and I now belong to you, God. Let me pray for us before we close. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your grace is free. I thank you that it's full. I thank you that it offers us something beyond this life. So God, right now, in this moment, I pray that, that those who are feeling the conviction of your word, God, you would move that conviction towards courage or they'd make a move to you to put their hope in you. Father, I pray for those who are their interest has been peaked. God, would you, would you draw that? Would you grow that interest into full faith? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would finish in hearts what you've been preparing for this morning. God, that, that you would finish in hearts what you've been preparing for their lifetime. Lord, that you would bring them home today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.